said, I'd like you to pull out of your program the card. It looks like this. It's up on the side screen there. Did I forget something? No one has a single one. We are going to divide this by 220, so all of you get one. Uh, when you see Jennifer, not my Jennifer, just tell her we need cards. Uh, anyways, so this is the card right here, uh, and you'll get one next week. So this will be great. When you look down on the left-hand side, and it says when, uh, what's the answer? Well, of course, it's Sunday. It's a church, okay? Uh, but what time is it? 10.30. And um, for us to fulfill the mission of JAR 2.0, which is in your program, it's always there, uh, we have felt called as a church to actually start a second celebration starting in October. So on October 14th, things may look different here, but we're going to have two times. 9 o'clock and 10.45. Now, I think that's pretty cool. What do you guys think? Okay. Now, what this is going to do, this is going to allow us to have more space. They tell us that if you sit 70 feet back or further, you get very distracted. Now, some of you only have to sit you know, 20 feet away and you get distracted. But 70 feet is about where that last row is now. Now, we get too much beyond that, and it becomes very difficult for us. And uh, now the, the real challenge is for us, in order to do this, um, there are two things that we need from you guys. First of all, we need to amp, for you guys to amp up your ability to invite your friends, coworkers, and people who are disconnected from Christ. That you would invite all of those folks to come and to experience God's love. And now you have two opportunities, either 9 or 1045. And when you actually get a card, um, you'll be really good at this, and we'll get those for you. The second thing is, is that we're going to need people to serve. Now, I've never been this bold before, but I'll say this. If you are sitting in a seat right now, and that includes all of those of you that are standing, you will be sitting soon. If you're sitting in a seat, you should be serving in some area. And you can choose whatever that is, whether it's a setup team or hospitality or our children's ministry, but serve in some area. And what's so great now is that if you choose to serve, you still can go to, to church at one of the celebrations. So we're kind of calling everyone to have hands on deck, all hands on deck, and for us to really be able to do this. So, are you with me? All right, there we go. At this time, I'm going to invite the greeters to come forward, so if they can kind of walk on up. And we're going to take our morning offering. Now, if you are uh, here for the first time, uh, we don't want your money. Uh, keep it in your pocket. Uh, keep it in your wallet. Keep it in your purse. But if... Uh, you call this your church family, and this is your home. We encourage you to give generously because we worship such a generous God. Let's pray.
God, we thank you so much for your love and your faithfulness to us. How your love endures forever and ever. As we were singing that song this morning, I was just thinking that around the globe, that view of you looking over and seeing planet Earth, that your love just pours out on every single person. And I think the amazing thing to me, God, is that if the person who's sitting in the chair that is sitting in that chair right now, God, if they were the only person, you would have sent your amazing love of the death of Jesus into their life because you love them that much. And we thank you, God, for times that you challenge us, that you call us to step up and to really reach out. And God, as we go into this second celebration in a couple of months, we pray right now through the power of the Holy Spirit that you would use us to reach out to our friends and coworkers and family who are disconnected from you, that they would receive your love and your hope. And now, God, may the offering that we receive this morning be used to touch so many lives in our community that your name would be made great in a huge way. Thank you to everyone, God, who, who gives this morning. And come, Holy Spirit, right now, and we pray that you would help us to recognize your presence in this place. And if there's someone who is here that needs convicted, God, that not through me, but just through your love and your spirit, that you'd convict them. If someone needs challenge, if someone needs to encourage, that they feel discouraged, that you would encourage them this morning as they grow closer to you. Send us your power right now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Out of all the kinds of heartbreak that a human being can experience, I think the saddest heartbreak that we ever experience is that of a relational heartbreak. I think of a couple who um, stands before a judge at their divorce hearing. And they remember standing many, many years ago in front of a pastor or a justice of the peace, and they make these vows that they're committed to each other for life, and they are so filled with hope and with love. But things kind of get deteriorated. And what they dreamed of ends. And they just ask themselves, you know, how did it come to this? How did it come to this? I think about two friends who start a business together. And they are filled with joy, mainly because they're like, we get to do this together. We get to be partners. And then somewhere along the line, The bottom kind of falls out and they have to dissolve the business and it's so bad that they have to bring a third party in to distribute everything. And they wonder, how did it come to this? And this morning, I want to talk to you about what leads to relational heartbreak. By looking at a painful story in the life of David, the guy that we've looked at this entire summer, and his son, Absalom. 
You know, there are crossroad moments, folks, that all of us come to, and we talked about this last week. And David comes to this crossroad moment in his own life. It's with he and his son Absalom. And there were some really crucial mistakes that were made in the story we're going to look at. When, if there were just another road that he would have taken, it would have saved him from so much pain, and things could have turned out so differently. And this morning, I want to look at three of those crossroads. I want us to talk about what love must do when we minimize the chance of relational heartbreak. What love must do to minimize the chance of relational heartbreak. Now, what I want us to look at, first of all, is David's kids. David, that we know of, that are written down at least, had 20 kids. It looked like this. Anybody know that family? It's like the Duggars, man. And he had 20 kids. Okay, let me ask you this question just right off the top. Let's get real honest. Raise your hand if you've ever been to a family gathering before. Not right yet now. But raise your hand if you've ever been to a family gathering before and you get there and you look around and you hear everything and you deal with all of this and you go, hey, my family's not perfect. Raise your hand if that experience has ever happened to you. Okay, now we did not have 100% of everyone doing that. And we know that if that's the case, the people that did not raise their hands, what do we call them? Liars. That's right. Because we all have dysfunctional, messed up families. Like if your family isn't that way, you're probably not at the right church. Folks, we live in dysfunctional, broken families. And until Jesus returns, that's the only kind of families we're ever going to connect with. And dysfunctional families, folks, are not just a 20th or 20th, 21st century uh, phenomenon. Dysfunctional families have been happening since Adam and Eve. And even though David was an amazing man, and we're told that he was a man after God's own heart, his family and his kids were broken. They were messed up. Now, here are some of the issues that David's family dealt with. Adultery, polygamy, substance abuse. Years of total estrangement, vandalism, open hatred between one another, rape, murder, and incest. Anybody got a family list like that? Don't raise your hand on that one. Okay. I'm hoping that you're going, wow, his family really was messed up. Because it was. Now, we can look at all of David's kids, but what I want us to look at this morning are just three of his kids. First of all, we're going to look at the oldest born son. His name was Amnon. He's the oldest. And in this culture, it means he gets half of everything. So the other 19 get the other half. He gets the other half. So he's a very important person. Now, Scripture tells us that he developed a sexual obsession with his sister, Tamar. And Tamar was uh, David's prized daughter. She's the only daughter that's mentioned out of these 20 kids. And um, we find out 
that it's a half-sister. It's the sister of another woman. David had multiple wives. But he's consumed, this Amnon guy, her older brother, is consumed with her so much that he gets physically ill. Now, I was going to ask, how many of you guys have ever gotten physically ill thinking of another beautiful woman? But I didn't want to, you know, make you look bad this morning. And a relative notices what his own father doesn't notice, that he's physically ill, that he looks miserable, that he's pale. And so he goes up to him and he says, Amnon, what's up? And Amnon tells him what's going on. And the two of them then scheme together to develop a plot to show that he's ill so that they send Tamar to come to bring him some food and to care for his needs. And he would lure her then into bed. Now David, the father of this entire family, is clueless. He has no idea what's going on. And not only does he not see what's going on with Amnon, but he doesn't protect or try to take care of his daughter Tamar. In fact, David's actually the one that tells her to go. Go take care of your brother. And so she goes in and she's thinking that she's going in to serve some food. But Amnon tries to get her to sleep with him. Something that never happens in America, I know. But he's stronger than her because at first she refuses. She says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to dishonor anything. But he's stronger than she is and he actually rapes her, his half-sister. And then the scripture says this. Then Amnon hated her with an intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. No, she said to him, sending me away would be a greater wrong than what you have already done to me. But he refused to listen to her. He called his personal servant and said, get this woman out of her and bolt the door after her. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. Now what I want you to notice in this passage is the language that we find here. Because it's a detail that's throughout this entire story. In fact, throughout all of David's life. After he does this horrible thing of raping her, Amnon calls to his personal assistant and he refers to her as Get this what? What's it say? Woman. Get this woman. He doesn't say Tamar. He doesn't say uh, my sister. He doesn't say my dad's daughter. He says this woman. Now, this is an interesting theme that happens throughout all of David's family. Very often when one person is sinning against another person, they will avoid using that person's name or referring to the relationship that they have with that person. It's kind of a way that you dehumanize someone if you don't have to name them. Last week we saw this, remember, in the story of David and Bathsheba, the woman that David commits adultery with. The servant comes to him and says, David, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah? He's saying, hey, this is someone's daughter. This is someone's wife. Be careful, David. 
But if you remember what, the way that David refers to her after that is just that woman. This has happened in our own political system. Remember several years ago when uh, President Clinton's sexual scandal came? Do you remember the statement that he made of denial? He said, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. And then he gave the name. Folks, we all do this when sin is involved. We try to separate ourselves from that person and we say things like, not my brother, not my sister, not my friend, not my co-worker. It's just that man or that woman. And Amnon rejects Tamar. Get this woman out of here. And the servant bolts out, uh, puts her out and bolted the door after her. Just imagine what must have happened and what must have been going on in Tamar's heart and her spirit. She goes to this room of her brother, who they grew up together. And she opens the door and she thinks that she is there to serve him a meal. And she walks into that room and she unbolts the door, but then the door is slammed on her face and it's bolted back again. And in between those two moments of the door being open and the door being closed, folks, her life is destroyed forever. And you know what's so interesting to me in all of this? is that the victim, Tamar, is the one person in this whole messed up family and messed up story who shows integrity and courage. Amnon was counting on that she would just keep all of this hush, that she wouldn't say anything. And he decided he would just go through life and pretend as if nothing happened. But Tamar would not go along with this. She goes out into public... She puts ashes all over her body, which was a sign of showing that something had happened to her. And eventually, you know, word gets out and people find out exactly that Amnon had raped his sister. And even though she risked the possibility of everyone saying, I don't believe you, or that someone would say, well, I bet you just lured him in, Tamar refused to be intimidated by Amnon for this cover-up of evil. And she heroically stands up and she just believes strongly that now my dad, the just king, will give justice to me. And then we're introduced to the third son. His name's Absalom. And when Absalom finds out what happened, he invites his sister and he says, come, come stay with me for a little while. And so she lived with him for days and for weeks and for months, and they both just thought, surely Dad is going to take some action. Surely tomorrow he'll do something. And this is what the text says. It says, when King David heard all this, he was furious. Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. But he hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister, Tamar. 
Absalom gets mad. He gets ticked off. He gets upset. Now what does David do? The dad. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And the question becomes, why not? Well, the text does not say maybe he was preoccupied with being a king, or maybe he was worried about Amnon's response, because parents are like that sometimes, right? Sometimes parents have to take some really tough choices, and they have to say some tough things to people, to their kids. But they don't do it sometimes because they're afraid that they won't look at me as highly, or they won't think I'm so great, or, you know, they'll, they'll turn against me in some way. But I think the reason why David acts this way is for a totally different reason. And it deals with Amnon's behavior. See, Amnon lusted after a woman. Then he figured out he could use his power to position her. And then he could just discard her and throw her away. Now, who else do you know did that exact same thing? David! His dad! I think maybe David was paralyzed with his own fallenness. But for whatever reason, at that moment, when this father should have kind of come to a point of action, he does nothing. Absolutely nothing. David had faced Goliath, who was a giant. He had faced Saul, who was this horrible king. He had led a nation. And now his, his own daughter, his own flesh and blood is violated and he doesn't even lift up a finger. And so we hit our first crossroad and it is the confrontational crossroad. The confrontational crossroad. This is where love confronts. You could just write it off to the side there. But this is where love confronts. You know, most of us don't sign up to confront people all the time because it's not an easy thing. It's very difficult to confront someone when they're in the wrong. But when a relational kind of breakdown occurs and you realize that you have two choices, either you can confront the person or you can passively just kind of let this go and hopefully it'll go away, it, it never works that way, does it? Maybe it's somebody in your family. You, when I said family, right now, some of you thought, man, there is somebody. They've done me wrong. I need to confront them. But you don't. Or maybe it's someone at work or someone here at the church. Because we get issues with each other in church and sometimes we never talk about it. And there's just this wall that keeps on being built up between the two of you and you know it. Now, you can talk to the person you could address the problem. You could try to help. It might get messy, but you could do that. But you can find an easier way, right? Just kind of ignore it. Don't do anything at all. Just let it go. And if you ignore it long enough, you kind of get used to it, and weeks turn into months, and months turn into years, and after a while, folks, you become like David. Now, for some of you, it's a parenting deal. 
When you're a parent, often you have to set some type of boundary. And then you proclaim the consequences. But the real question is, how are they going to respond? Do your kids say, Mom and Dad, I'm so grateful that you have placed that boundary around me. And I'm looking forward to obeying within that boundary and doing everything. As you have said, Oh, Mom and Dad, I am so blessed to be your child. Is that how your kids act? No! Kids are about testing boundaries. Testing boundaries is what they do for a living. When I was uh, young, I had two uh, friends, Mitch and Matt. They were brothers, and they lived out in a farmhouse. And for a 10-year-old kid, going out to someone's house where the rules are different and you are kind of open in this big field and you have a lot of things that you can do. It was adventure for me. It was paradise. And one of the boundaries that was in their home was that you could not go into the room where the crystal chandelier came down in the middle of the living room. I mean, the rest of the house, to be honest, wasn't much of anything. But for some reason, this one room had this crystal chandelier that came down in the middle of it. And this was the rule. No playing, no walking, no breathing in that room. Well, when Mitch and Matt's parents left, we challenged the boundaries. Nothing too serious. We just wrestled, played football, and had pillow fights all the time in that room with the chandelier. And in the process of one of these experiences, down comes part of the chandelier. And uh, we decided there's a way to fix this. So we rode our bikes to Kmart, and we got super glue, and we came back, and we super glued it together to once again, it was the prize chandelier. Well, we were convinced we had gotten away with the perfect crime, and we kept it a secret for months. But then one day, for some reason, their mom, whose name was Joy, and she was not always very joyful, to be quite honest. She got possessed with this cleaning bug, and she went from sloppy Susie to Susie Homemaker, and she cleaned everything. Well, when she got to the chandelier, all of a sudden you start seeing all the imperfections of this. And she yells out to Mitch and Matt, and they ratted me out. Now, when their mom came to my mom and told them what happened, my mom was very defensive and said, Chris is perfectly behaved. He would have never broken the rules. And about that time, I remember walking in with a pillow in my hand, and all of a sudden, both parents were like, and I was out, just as I threw it across the room. No, not really. And I remember going home, and I mean, I remember being reinforced the boundary all on my backside. Some of you are sitting there this morning, and there's something going on in your relational world, and you know it. 
Maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's one of your kids. Maybe it's your boss, maybe it's a coworker, Maybe it's someone that you know in this room. And it's enormous. But you're not doing anything. I'll tell you, as strongly as I can tell you this morning, and as someone who loves you, do not wait for it to go away. Because it's not going to go away. I don't know what it takes, but sometimes, folks, the way that you love the most is when you confront. And if you wait, and you wait, and you wait, it just builds up bitterness and resentment, and you never get made well. Folks, especially in a relational world, within the family, when sin is not directly dealt with, it just tends to lead to more sin. When sin is not dealt with effectively and directly, it leads to more sin. You can take that to the bank. And that's what happens in our story this morning. Two years pass by. Imagine that. Two years. Two years of humiliation for Tamar. Two years of passivity from David. But two years of vengeance thinking by Absalom to get back at his brother. And Absalom is becoming a very dangerous man. And one day in which he used to respect his father, now he has total disrespect of him. And the day comes when he says, you are too gutless to do anything. And he takes matters into his own hands. And he takes over. He sets a trap for Amnon. And the scripture says this, Absalom told his servants, keep an eye on Amnon. When he gets a little drunk from the wine, and, it's, and he's feeling good. I'll give you the signal. Then kill him. Now, where do you think he got this plan from? Remember last week we talked about David? He commits adultery, and then all of a sudden he gets rid of the woman's husband, Uriah, who was in the way. So Absalom takes vengeance, and he kills his brother, But now he can't stick around. He knows he has to leave. They will be after him, so he flees into exile. And there are three more years that take place. So now, folks, the two years that David does nothing once Tamar is raped, and now three years more, five years, David sits on the sideline. He does absolutely nothing to confront the situation that's going on in his family. And the text says this, And the spirit of the king longed to go to Absalom. In other words, he wanted to, but he didn't do anything. He didn't go. He stayed home. Finally, Joab, uh, who was David's right-hand man, negotiates a way for Absalom to come to Jerusalem, to come back home without him being harmed, and David agrees. Now just imagine what must have been going on in Absalom's head as he comes to the city gates and he's going to meet his father for the first time in over five years. What is my dad going to do? Will he be harsh? Will he be tender? Will he forgive? What will he say? And folks, this is a defining moment in Absalom's life. And all of us have those moments when we're challenged on what are we going to do. And then David made one of his greatest mistakes that he ever made in his life. The scripture says this, Then Joab went to Geshur, 
and brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. But the king, again, it doesn't say his dad, his father, says the king, he must not come, he must go to his own house. He must not see my face. So Absalom went to his own house and he did not see the face of the king. You know, I wonder what must have been going on in his heart, Absalom's heart, as he comes back to see his dad. And he's so wishing and hoping that his dad would just pay attention to him in some way. But his dad totally rejects him. He totally ignores him. I mean, all that he needed was a father who was going to listen. To listen to his confusion, to listen to his anger, to listen to his bitterness, to listen to his hurt, to listen to his love. He could not see the face of the king. And this leads us to the second crossroad, and that is the listening crossroad. That love listens. Love confronts, but love listens. What Absalom needed the most in that moment from his father was he just needed someone to listen to him. And David was not there. So Absalom tries to reach out to his father again a second time. He goes to Joab and he says, Hey, I just want to meet my dad. I've got to talk to my dad. But Joab would not even respond because he knew what David's answer was. David said, no, he is not welcomed in this place. And for two years, he lives in Jerusalem. He can see the palace where his dad lives, and he's not allowed to go there. Everybody knows what's going on. Everyone knows that Absalom is back. Everyone knows that his father is not seeing him. And he's humiliated in front of all of these people, but he cannot see his father. And finally, Absalom goes to his father one more time, and then he does something very dramatic to get his attention. In chapter 14, verse 29, the story says this, Absalom sent for Joab to get him in to see the king, but Joab still wouldn't budge. He tried a second time, and Joab still wouldn't. So he told his servants, listen, Joab's field adjoins mine, and he has crops of barley in it. Go set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. That got him moving. (laughs) I love that. That got him moving. Joab came to Absalom at his home and said, why did your servant set my field on fire? And Absalom answered him, Listen, I sent for you saying, come and, come and soon. I want, to see, I want to send you to the king to ask, what's the point of my coming back from Geshur? I'd be better off still there. Let me see the face-to-face of the king. If he finds me guilty, then he can put me to death. Can you imagine the level of frustration and anger a son must have to feel that he would go to a point of being able to get the attention of his dad by setting fields on fire of the military chief of the country? But kids do that. They really do. They would love to have their parents 
loving attention. But if they can't get that, they'll do whatever it takes to get the attention of their parents. Sometimes they'll use drugs. Sometimes they'll get pregnant. Sometimes they'll break laws. Anything to get the attention of their parents. And maybe sometimes it's out of rebelliousness or foolishness. But sometimes it's not. Sometimes what's really going on is that they're just setting a field on fire, desperately hoping that someone will pay attention to them. And folks, when things get difficult and when things get confusing and when things get hurtful, love listens. Love really does. I wonder for the people in your life, especially the difficult people in your life or the small people in your life, do you really listen to them? I remember when I was 14 years old and... uh, my dad came and said that we were moving from Marion, Indiana to Anderson, where he was going to be the pastor of a new church. I didn't want to move, and I made it known. It was only 25 miles, but it felt like 25,000 miles to me because I knew no one who lived in Anderson. And I started to rebel, and I talked back, and I lied, and I cussed my parents out, and I did all of these things. Overall, I was very disrespectful to my parents. And my dad just kind of sat there and he he didn't go off. He didn't hurt me, thankfully. But he just listened. And finally, one day he came to me and he sat me down and he said, Chris, what's wrong? And I said, I don't know anyone in Anderson. And I remember yelling and screaming at him and telling him how he was ruining my life. And finally, after I ranted and raved for a long time, I broke down and started crying. And I said, Dad, I'm sad. I'm really sad. I'm going to leave everything that I've known. And I'm going to a place that I don't know anybody. I'm going to have no friends. And he listened. And I remember even saying, my life is going to end. Now I'm sure my dad probably thought, boy, you don't know how close your life is going to end. (laughs) But he didn't. He just kind of listened. And I'll never forget that. You know, sometimes when you're 14 and you're moving into high school as a ninth grader, into a new high school, and you don't know anyone, sometimes you don't know how to process all of that. And so sometimes you might set a field on fire. And Absalom sets some fields on fire, so Joab makes some more arrangements because David is still not doing anything. Finally, Joab arranges for a meeting, but it really is nothing more than just kind of pomp and circumstance, and it means nothing. And four years go by, and again, David does nothing. He doesn't lift a finger or try to reconcile the relationship. And finally, Absalom goes to his dad, and he's done with him. He says, if you are not going to recognize me, I'm done. 
And he takes matters into his own hands. And he takes over the kingdom of Israel because people are like, we don't want a king who's just going to sit and do nothing. So they turn to Absalom, and Absalom becomes the king over much of the kingdom. And here is how severe the level of relational breakdown gets to. The story says this. So Absalom picked a tent up on the, put a tent up on the palace roof in public view and went in and slept with his father's concubines. Folks, Absalom sleeps with some of his father's wives in front of the entire country. This is the way that you're going to humiliate your father and disregard anything that he said. And he's letting everybody know there's a new sheriff in town and I'm doing it my way. Now just imagine what that must have done to David's heart and spirit when he learns because he's in the wilderness. Where did Absalom learn to treat women like that? From his dad. But David is so far away, he's so far removed, he has gone into exile, into the wilderness, but finally David opens his heart up once again, and God says, you have to go to battle, we've got to bring the country back together again. But Absalom devises this plan for his son not to be hurt. The scripture says this, the king commanded his men, be gentle with the young Absalom. And they go to battle. And the story goes that Absalom had a beautiful head of hair, close to five pounds, and it's down the back of his neck, and he rides a mule, and somehow his hair gets into the branches, and he's hanging there, and Joab, David's right-hand man, comes in and throws the spear, and he kills him. And this horrible news gets back to David, who has been silent this whole time, and the scripture simply says, the king was shaken. Why was he shaken? Because he remembered the moment that he held little Absalom as a baby in his arms. He remembers the Absalom who adored him, that every time the neighborhood kids would play David and Goliath, he always wanted to be David. He always wanted to be his dad. The king's shaken because he thinks of all the things that he could have been or he could have said, but he didn't. He thinks of the father that he wanted to be or could have been, but he wasn't. He thinks of all the stupid things and all the stupid choices that he made, but now it's too late. He thinks of all that he could have said and done, but he didn't. And it brings us to our final crossroad, and that is the speaking crossroad. Love speaks. Love speaks. And all of a sudden, it's so stored up in him that Absalom, every time he thinks of his son, he's so hurt and he's so overwhelmed that he just cries out these words, Oh, my son, Absalom. My son, my son. If only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And he thinks about the relational breakdown and he just goes over in his head again and again. And love speaks. But this is the problem, folks. It's too late. It's too late. He finally says the words that he should have said years ago, but he didn't. And I think part of that is because his heart was breaking. And all he has left now to speak love is, my son, my son, I love you. 
Love confronts. Sometimes it listens. And sometimes love has to speak. And some of you are here this morning and you have a relationship in your life and it is broken, it is messed up, and you need to speak into it. And if that person is like Absalom and they would die today, you would live with so much regret and so much guilt in your life, you cannot even imagine it. I see it all the time. And folks, this is the thing. I don't want you to have to go through that. So I want to ask you this morning, what's the word that you need to say? Maybe like David, you need to go to this person and just say, I'm sorry. Maybe it's, please forgive me. Maybe it's, I love you. Maybe you're like Absalom this morning and someone has done something horrible to you and you've just been fighting back all the time and what you need to do is to go to that person. They may not even acknowledge it, but you just say, and you mean it, I forgive you. Let's try again. Maybe it's a son, maybe it's a daughter, maybe it's a dad, maybe it's a prompting that you get from God this morning. But I just want to encourage you as much as I know how. Don't let this go by without doing something. Do not do what David did. Do not assign your life a lifetime of regret. If there is a word that needs to be said in your relational world, you say it. You be the first one. You be the one that takes the first step. In fact, I just want to challenge you right now that you make a commitment right now. I'm asking God to put the, the face of a person in your mind of who you know you need to make things right with and that within the next 24 hours, you're going to do it. And you know why I say 24 hours? Because if I just do a nice little teaching message and say, hey, forgive people, all of you will say, that's a great idea, and then you'll let it go. So I'm giving you A challenge today. Put it down right now. 24 hours. I'm going to take care of this thing. It'll be the biggest load that's lifted off your shoulders if you'll just let it happen. Now, some of you would say, well, why should I do that? Why should I forgive somebody who hurt me? Or if you're in the position of David, why should I ask for forgiveness from someone? And this is as simply as I know how to say it, folks. Because Jesus forgave you of all of your stuff. Once and for all, He died for everything for you. And He's challenging you to forgive other people. Today we're going to celebrate communion, which is the essence of asking for forgiveness. You go to God and you say, God, I don't have it together. I need to ask for forgiveness. And he's challenging you today. Don't just take, but then give some forgiveness back, whoever that person is. And so around us are some tables. There's a gluten-free table here if you have that allergy and you need that. But when you come to one of these tables, I invite you just to tear off a piece of the bread and to put it into the juice, and to take and eat. 
and know that you are totally forgiven. Whatever it is in your life, you're forgiven. But in the same way, Jesus really is challenging you today to forgive a person in your life who has hurt you. And I'm going to pray here in just a second that God would put the picture of the person in your mind of who you need to forgive. And I'm going to, I'm going to pray this prayer. I'm going to pray that until you forgive them, you're going to be miserable. think I have the guts to do it, do you? I'm going to pray that you have sleepless nights until you forgive that person. Mike just said it. Mike Mike just said something really cool. He said, I already have them. And you know what the reality is, folks? Many of you already are having some sleepless nights right now, too. And you know why? Because you're not forgiving people. ask you to do things that I don't do. This week, I had to confront someone, someone in the church. I tried to skim it by, said, oh, we'll just let the meeting go by. I won't go confront that person. I prayed, talked to a couple people, and when Tuesday morning came, and I knew I had to confront someone, I didn't do it in my own power, folks. I did it in the power of the Holy Spirit. And you want to know the relief that I felt when all of a sudden I did that? That meeting went on. It went fantastic. The concept of two celebrations came out of it. Why did that happen? Because Chris, who has very little faith, just decided to take one step and to confront. And some of you need to confront. Some of you need to listen. Some of you need to speak. But all of you need to forgive somebody. Let's pray. And when you're done, uh, if you'll come back to your seats, Derek will lead us kind of in a closing song. But I want you to take some moments right now for you to quiet yourself. And I pray right now, Jesus, that your Holy Spirit would put the face of a person in everyone's mind that they need to forgive. that within the next 24 hours, God, that we would forgive those people. For some of us, God, if we've hurt somebody and we need to ask for forgiveness, God, I pray in the next 24 hours, you would be relentless with us. Because, God, we need freedom. We need your spiritual freedom in our lives. So come now, God, bring your forgiveness to every person in this place.
Heavenly Father, I pray for every relationship in this room. You know about the relational hurts that are in this place, God. People are experiencing them right now. I pray for an openness of heart of every man and every woman in this gym. God, I I pray that you would help them to know that they're forgiven. They're your child. You love them. There's nothing that they've done this week, this year, within their life that you don't forgive them of. And you're just asking them now, hey, if I've forgiven you of everything, forgive this person. Give them the strength, God, in these next 24 hours to make it right. God, we come to these tables. We're imperfect people. But we come to receive your mercy and your grace and your love that is perfect in you. So come, Holy Spirit, move in the lives of your people. Let them know that they're treasured and they're treasured to forgive. Pray this in Jesus' name. If anyone uh, is getting baptized tonight or uh, you want to accept Christ for the first time, I'm going to be at this table. But all the other tables, if you're open to Christ, that you would just go and you would receive forgiveness.